Warning. Seriously Strange covers topics that may frighten or disturb you. Viewer discretion is advised. Stalkers, something to be dreaded by celebrities and non-celebrities alike. Obsessive loners, they won't take no for an answer, and they will come up with ingenious ways of making contact with you. And one thing is for certain, they will indeed make contact with you. Celebrities are loved by a great many people, but sometimes that love turns into a dangerous obsession, and that can lead to disaster. Teresa Saldana was a popular actress in the 1980s. She played a number of different roles, but one in particular led to unexpected results. Her role in the 1980 film Defiance captured the attention of Arthur Richard Jackson, a drifter from Scotland. Jackson became infatuated with Saldana and decided it was time he took a trip to the United States. Jackson proved that he would go to great lengths to find his target. He hired a private investigator to find Saldana's mother's unlisted phone number. He called Teresa's mother, posing as an assistant for director Martin Scorsese. He said he needed Teresa's address to contact her regarding an upcoming role. Her mother gave him the address, and Jackson was on his way. Jackson suffered from a very powerful delusion. He believed it was his destiny to meet with Teresa Saldana and kill her. Once he was captured and executed for her murder, they would both come to reunite in the afterlife, where they would spend eternity together. Jackson located Saldana's address and waited outside. She eventually emerged from the house and he launched his attack. Arthur Richard Jackson lunged at Teresa Saldana with a large hunting knife and in broad daylight began stabbing her repeatedly. He stabbed her ten times in her torso and despite many onlookers, a delivery man on the second floor of a nearby apartment building heard her cries and rushed to her aid. He subdued Jackson and Teresa was treated at the hospital. After a four-hour surgery and four months in the hospital, she was released. She had survived her brutal encounter. It was revealed that Jackson had stabbed Teresa so hard that he had bent the blade of the knife. Teresa went on to play herself in a role reenacting the experience she had endured, while Jackson earned a trip to a mental hospital where he eventually died of heart failure. Jackson's tactics of hiring a private investigator went on to inspire a new stalker, Robert John Bardo. Rebecca Schaefer was another actress that would come to no tragedy. At 21 years old, her acting career was starting to take off. She had played in a 1980s sitcom called My Sister Sam and was starting to expand her horizons. She had many admirers, and one of them was 19-year-old Robert John Bardo, who obsessively worshipped Schaefer and even had a shrine dedicated to her in his home. Bardo had made many attempts to visit Schaefer on the set of My Sister Sam, but he was always always 
turned away, so he often wrote her letters instead, but something suddenly changed Bardo's perspective when Schaefer took a role with a male actor and played out a scene where she was in bed with him. Bardo was enraged. He believed Schaefer had become just another Hollywood whore and decided that she would have to be punished for her misdeeds. With the aid of a private investigator, Bardo obtained Schaefer's home address and set forth for Los Angeles. Bardo felt betrayed. His delusion was shattered and he felt he had to remedy the issue as soon as possible. On July 18, 1989, Robert John Bardo approached Rebecca Schaefer's apartment and rang the bell. She opened the door and he showed her an autograph that she had sent him through the mail some time ago. After a short and awkward conversation, she asked Bardo to leave and not return to her home. Bardo left as requested, but he had no intention of staying away. Bardo Winton casually had breakfast at a nearby diner before heading back to Schaefer's home, but this time he had a brown paper bag with him. Once again, he rang her bell and she again approached the door, answering with what Bardo described as a cold look on her face. He wasted little time before withdrawing a handgun from the bag and shooting Schaefer in the chest. He fled, and she was pronounced dead shortly after reaching the hospital. Bardo was eventually captured. He was found aimlessly running through traffic. He promptly confessed to the murder and told police that Rebecca Schaefer's last word was why. Lori Shaw was 16 years old and not a celebrity at all. Unfortunately, she was mixed up in a love triangle between a boy and a jealous ex-lover. Shaw was open to the idea of a relationship and in 1991 began to date Lawrence Youngkin. Youngkin's ex-girlfriend, Lisa Michelle Lambert, was infuriated by this. She still had feelings for him. The relationship between Shaw and Youngkin didn't work out, as Shaw claimed he had date-raped her. Youngkin went back to Lambert, who had turned out to be pregnant with his child. Lisa Lambert and Lawrence Youngkin were once again reunited. True love lasts forever. While Lori simply wanted to just move on from the entire thing, Lisa wanted to be sure that Lori would forever regret ever dating her boyfriend. Lisa would often show up at Lori's job to taunt and verbally assault her. Right in public, she would insult Lori and express her distaste for her. Witnesses even claimed that they heard Lisa express that she wanted to scare Lori before hurting her and slitting her throat. Lisa was set on making her desires become a reality. On December 21st, 1991, Hazel Show, Lori's mother, received a phone call from Lori's guidance counselor, who asked Hazel to come down to the school for a short meeting to talk about Lori. Hazel obliged and left, unaware that the call didn't come from the school at all, but was made by Lisa. Lisa simply wanted to get Lori's mother out of the house, and she had succeeded. She took a friend and had Lawrence Youngkin drop them off at Lori's house. Lisa forced her way into Lori's house and attacked her brutally. She stabbed Lori repeatedly as she lied helpless on the floor before slitting her throat, just as she had claimed she always wanted to do. Lori's mother came home a short time after and found her daughter lying in a pool of her own blood, still clinging on to life. As she held her daughter, she claimed that Lori was able to say a few words, where she revealed to her mother that Lisa was the one who did it. Lori died shortly thereafter on the floor of her home. Lisa and her friend were both sentenced to life in prison without parole, where they continue to remain.
Many students have had a teacher that they find attractive, but for one certain algebra teacher, this harmless attraction turned into obsessive infatuation. Ming Sen Xiu was a psychopath. At an early age, his mother described him as violent and uncaring. He lacked empathy or remorse, and throughout his life engaged in criminal activity. While attending high school, Xiu came to develop a crush on his ninth grade algebra teacher, Mary Stouffer. He sexually fantasized about her, often writing stories where she would be raped. But these kind of activities can't hold a predator at bay forever. A lot of time had passed. It had been 15 years since he sat in Mary Stouffer's classroom, and he had eventually come to discover his old teacher's whereabouts. He stalked Stouffer until May of 1980, where he found her at a salon. She walked out with her eight-year-old daughter Elizabeth, and at gunpoint, he abducted them both. They were quickly tied up and thrown into the trunk of his car, and he promptly headed home. Along the way, however, Mary and her daughter were making a lot of noise. At one point, he had to pull over to keep them quiet. As he was doing this, he was approached by a young boy who had heard the commotion and wanted to see what was going on. Xiu promptly tossed the boy in the trunk as well. He stopped again along the way to pull the boy out and beat him to death with a metal rod. At his house, the daughter Elizabeth was often locked away in a box while Mary would spend most of her time locked in his closet unless he was going to take her out, tie her to the furniture, and rape her repeatedly. One day while Xiu had been at work, Mary managed to escape the confines of her closet and called the police using Xiu's phone. Police arrived and rescued her and her daughter almost two months after they had been abducted. Having been immediately arrested, Xiu stood trial and had managed to sneak a knife into the courtroom. While Mary was testifying, Xiu unexpectedly lunged at Mary and sliced the side of her face open with the knife. It took 62 stitches to close the wound. She was up for parole in 2010 and for whatever reason was deemed a threat to society even now. So it's been decided that he will spend the rest of his life in prison. Your job is a very good place to meet new people. Even a potential love interest could happen there. But a job is a place that you're required to be at. So it's the perfect place for a stalker. Laura Black was 22 years old when she went to work for ESL Incorporated, a technology firm at the time. There she met Richard Farley. The fact that she was 12 years younger than him did nothing to hold him back. He immediately fell in love with Laura. He often gave her gifts and wrote her letters where he would ask her to be his girlfriend. She always politely declined, but he wouldn't take no for an answer. Over the course of four years, Richard would continue to pressure Laura. Even if she changed residences, he would find out where she lived and continue to harass her. Eventually, Laura contacted human services of their company, who required Richard to take part in counseling sessions. The sessions didn't help, and Richard continued to press Laura until he was eventually terminated by the company. Overall, he had written Laura over 200 letters. He had been working at ESL Incorporated for nine years, and now he turned to stalking Laura full-time. 
Laura filed for a temporary restraining order and she was granted it, and a court date was set to determine whether the temporary restraining order should become permanent. One day before the court date, Richard drove his motorhome to the ASL parking lot with numerous firearms and over a thousand rounds of ammunition. He fired on innocent bystanders and killed as many people as he could find that he came across. He killed seven people and injured four others on his rampage. When he came to Laura's office, she attempted to slam the door in his face. He shot through the door twice. The first bullet missed her, while the second struck her in the shoulder. She fell unconscious, and Richard moved on. He failed to kill the one person who he had come to kill before anyone else. Farley held down police SWAT for five hours after his rampage. During this time, Laura had awoken, stopped her bleeding, and with some other co-workers, managed to escape. He surrendered after requesting a sandwich and soft drink from Togo's. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week bringing you all the hauntings, from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. Unrequited love can be painful, but any healthy adult can learn to move on from this pain and respect the wishes of their loved ones. In the mind of a twisted stalker, however, unrequited love became an excuse for abhorrent, selfish, and aggressive behavior. It started innocently enough. Kristen Pratt, a student at the University of Central Florida, responded to a message from a fellow student, Patrick Michoni. This harmless reply seemed to ignite Patrick's obsessional mind. Soon, he wasn't just emailing and messaging Kristen, he was recording a series of frightening videos addressing her directly. Many of these videos contained thinly veiled threats, bizarre statements, and aggressive and frustrated rants. Michoni uploaded 27 videos to YouTube about Kristen Pratt, texting and emailing a series of chilling threats and demands. Kristen felt her life was in danger and subsequently involved the police. But after being diagnosed as mentally unstable, Patrick was able to reach a plea deal where he would spend just two years in jail. While he will also be on probation for 15 years, Kristen fears to this day that his obsession with her is far from over and that one day he may reach out and try to find her, potentially with deadly consequences. Predatory stalkers gain perverse pleasure from making their victims feel helpless. But in one case, a second encounter with such a pervert gave a victim the opportunity to fight back. One day, shopper Candace Spivey was perusing the women's underwear section of a store when 31-year-old Jeffrey Polizzi approached Candace to ask an innocent enough question about a dress he bought for his wife. 
For Candace, there was something a little too familiar about the exchange. The question the man asked, the way he looked, the way he was holding his phone suspiciously in his hand, as if potentially trying to record her without her knowing. Then it clicked for Candace. The situation had happened once before. Two years prior, the same man had approached her, that time with two young children with him. He had asked about a dress that he wanted to buy for his wife, but then moved into increasingly inappropriate questions. Realizing this, Candace was not going to be a victim of his twisted voyeurism for a second time. She recorded Jeffrey with her own phone, and when he tried to run away, Candace followed him relentlessly, chasing him from the store so that he couldn't do the same to other women who were there. Jeffrey Polizzi was soon identified, as was his record. He had previous arrests for preying on women in public places and filming them without their permission. In 2009, he was convicted for taking photographs of women in dressing rooms without their knowledge. Candace's bravery in confronting Jeffrey may just have made him think twice about doing such a thing ever again. Fame brings with it money, education, and confidence, but it can also bring unwanted attention, increasing violations of one's privacy, and in some cases, stalkers. Stalking behavior is usually an incremental process. The person does not begin as a stalker, but rather their fixations and often their mental health combine in such a way as to create an obsessed outlook. Ricardo Lopez was one such stalker. Ricardo Lopez was haunted by his own self-inadequacies. A constant fear of rejection hounded him, and eventually this fear turned itself towards an unhealthy outlet for solace, obsessing on famous women. Ricardo fixated on an American actress to begin with, but when she ended a relationship with a man and then began a relationship quickly with another, he grew angry at her and turned his fanaticism elsewhere. Bjork, the famous Icelandic singer, became the next outlet for his troubled mind. After writing several letters to her, he recorded in his diary a number of strange fantasies about somehow impacting her life. Through these fantasies, he would continually refer to himself as a loser. The focus for this lack of self-worth seemed to be his inability to form meaningful relationships with women. Ricardo's fantasies led him to his stalking behavior. He believed he had some deep connection to Bjork, but when she started a relationship with another musician, Ricardo felt somehow abandoned. In response to this imagined slight, Lopez began to formulate a plan. He would make Bjork pay for her infidelity. He began to record video diaries, tracking his obsession with precision and coming to the conclusion that the only way he could rectify the situation was to kill or hurt her. He decided he would send a package. Initially, his plan involved creating a bomb with needles contaminated with HIV inside, but after realizing such a device would be too difficult to build, he began making a simplified letter bomb. This cruel weapon was devised to not necessarily kill, but to seriously disfigure Bjork permanently once she opened it. After the bomb was sent, Lopez then took his own life. 
He did so in front of his camera, the last entry in his terrifying descent into violent, obsessional behavior. In that last video, Lopez shaved his head and painted it red and green, smearing his face with black grease paint. And then, as a piece of Bjork music reached its crescendo, he screamed, This is for you, and shot himself in the head while staring into the mirror. Thankfully, Lopez's decomposing body was found before the package was opened, ensuring that no one was harmed. Ricardo Lopez's bizarre desire for revenge ended in failure. The most chilling aspect of all is that Lopez's family, friends, and even therapists had no indication that he was violent. His stalker behavior was a secret, a dark one, which consumed him until the very end. Sometimes dating can lead to confusion when one partner has a very different idea of the relationship than the other. More often than not, this can lead to disappointment. But while most individuals can brush off the unhappiness of misunderstanding, there do exist some people who relentlessly refuse to let go. Prashenjit Potar was a graduate student at the University of California, Berkeley, from Bengal, India. During the autumn of 1968, Podar attended folk dancing classes at the International House. While taking these dance lessons, he met Tatiana Tarasov, and the two soon began dating. However, it wasn't long until Podar and Tarasov started to argue over the seriousness of the relationship. After their disagreement, Podar began obsessing over Tarasov. When she rejected him, Podar's fixation became so severe that he began to stalk her and developed an emotional crisis. During this time in his life, Podar started seeing a therapist, Dr. Lawrence Moore. Moore became increasingly concerned with Podar when he confessed to him that he held desires to kill Tatiana. Although he never named her, it was very obvious who Podar was referring to. After eight sessions, Moore warned Podar that if he continued with his death threats, he would be given no other choice but to have him committed to a psychiatric hospital. After telling him this, Podar stopped seeing Dr. Moore altogether. Greatly troubled by this, Moore quickly went to Dr. Harvey Powelson, his supervisor, to discuss the serious matters. Consequently, a letter was sent to campus police informing them of Podar's death threats. When the campus police interviewed Podar, he stated that he would leave Tatiana alone. But regrettably, this was merely a lie, and Podar's stalking behavior only continued. On October 27, 1969, Tatiana was confronted by her obsessive lover. When she tried to flee, Podar brutally stabbed her to death with a kitchen knife. He then proceeded back to her home, where he called the police, confessing his crime. Prajanjit Podar pled guilty of manslaughter, but went on trial for first-degree murder. He was shortly thereafter found guilty of second-degree murder. Podar spent five years in prison before a lawyer appealed the conviction. He was subsequently deported to India, where he currently resides and has since married.
As human beings, we will sometimes receive fearful insights regarding strangers or situations that may make us uncomfortable. And indeed, there have been many cases in which instinctual perceptions have saved the lives of potential victims. The case of Colette Dwyer and Derek Todd Lee is a prime example. In 2002, Colette Dwyer was dealing with an unfortunate ordeal. After being unrelentingly stalked by a man whom she believed to be a serial killer and contacting police, her report went unheeded. Thus, she was left having to face her menacing stalker alone. This perilous predicament started at her workplace when a regularly returning customer, Derek Todd Lee, became obsessed with Dwyer. In 1999, Lee broke into her home and insisted upon staying so that he could love and take care of her. Soon after this incident, Lee was charged with stalking and received probation. Even so, he was soon sent to prison for a different crime committed, unrelated to Colette Dwyer. After spending two years behind bars, Lee began stalking Dwyer again. It wasn't long until she heard about the murder of Charlotte Murray Pace, a woman who resided in Baton Rouge. Dwyer was convinced that the perpetrator was none other than her stalker, Derek Lee. Upon telling police, Lee was investigated, but sadly, a DNA sample was never taken. This was due to the fact that police thought the murderer was Caucasian. After the murder of Pam Keenamore, Dwyer contacted police yet again, but unfortunately, her concerns were still disregarded. Then, in 2003, authorities questioned Lee for the rape of another woman and therefore had his DNA tested. This linked him not only to the rape, but also the murders of Keenamore and Pace, as well as five others. He was soon nicknamed the Baton Rouge Serial Killer. Lee was sentenced to death for his crimes and is currently sitting on death row at the Louisiana State Penitentiary. Chances are surprisingly good that you may encounter a stalking situation of your own. According to the National Violence Against Women survey, 1 in 12 women and 1 in 45 men will experience a stalker in their lifetime. If you feel you may be dealing with a stalker, I've linked some resources in the description below of how to deal with the situation. So I urge you, if you believe you're in this type of situation, to check them out. Also, if you've ever been stalked in your life and you've gotten past it, why don't you share your experience in the comments below? You never know, you might be able to help somebody. That's all for now. Remember, you may not believe it, but anything is possible in a world so seriously strange. Thanks to all of you for your support. The Seriously Strange podcast is made possible due in part to contributions made by our listeners like you. So if you would like to keep the Seriously Strange podcast online and accessible, please consider pressing the link that says support the show in the description of any podcast episode. You can then choose your preferred way to donate and send a contribution our way because we can't do this without our listeners' support. If you decide to contribute, it's tremendously appreciated, and we thank you so much. 
We read every single message included with each contribution, so feel free to include your comments or even make a request for a future topic. Thanks for listening. We've got a lot more in store for you. Take care and enjoy your next episode.